So it's very a great pleasure for us to welcome our own member, Rabbi Dr. Michael Schmidtman. Rabbi Dr. Michael Schmidtman, Matan Torah, Maimonides, Halevi, and Elbo on the scenario at Sinai. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you, President Kadish, for your learned words of introduction, and uh, especially for your inspired and visionary leadership of the Turo College and University system, uh, day after day around the clock. It's an honor to work with you, and I wish you, uh, may you continue, Michael uh, Ochayo. With regard to David, my good friends, uh, Rabbi David Jacobowitz and Bernie Stahl, uh, I'd just like to express my appreciation for your efforts. I think very few people uh, know or remember that I served as the first uh, chair of adult education arena. That was back in the early 1980s, and that provides me with a unique vantage point um, with which to uh, appreciate the Herculean efforts that are invested in the planning and implementation of quality program after quality program, week after week, year after year. So on behalf of the entire community, I'm sure I uh, express Hakarata Tov uh, to my good friends Rabbi David Jacobowitz and Bernie Stuhl. I, <coughs> I might add that among the speakers that are most sought after by the Renaud Adult Education Committee are scholars like Rabbi Yaakov Meidan, Rabbi Elchanan Samid, Rabbi Kevi Targan, uh, Rabbi Yehuda Shaviv. I am proud to note that all of them hold MA degrees from the Torah Graduate School of Jewish Studies uh, from our Jerusalem branch. And if anyone here wants to join this group of the best and the brightest, uh, please see me either at my Manhattan office or right across the street at my home. And I'll be happy to provide you with uh, uh, pertinent information. There's also information outside on the uh, tables and various flyers. Yes. Is that good? Okay. Uh, better? Okay. Uh, one last thank you on the Torah side to my own graduate student, an outstanding student, Rabbi Baruch Vogel, for his intense efforts uh, in the preparation of this event under the skillful direction of the Executive Vice President of Torah, uh, Rabbi Moshe Krupka and his staff. There's an old story. I'm not sure exactly how old it is, but I know that it's at least 36 years old because I first heard it at an academic lecture in Cambridge in 1977, uh, concerning a professor who was invited to lecture at a shul. The professor comes to the shul and uh, delivers a rather lengthy talk, and at the conclusion of his presentation, one of the most learned congregants and one of the few who is still awake makes his way over to the rub of the shul and says, Rabbi, I must tell you, I was not impressed. I didn't learn anything new. What did you think? The rabbi responds, I thought that what he had to say was novel and good. Uh, the congregant is astonished. Rabbi, you're the most erudite person in the entire shul. How could you possibly claim to have enjoyed that lecture? The rabbi answers, I never said that I enjoyed the lecture. I simply said that it was novel and good. It's just that the parts that were novel were not good, and the parts that were good were not novel. Uh, my subject this morning, Matan Torah, 
concerns an event that transpired well over 3,000 years ago, uh, thus providing ample time for generations of Tanaim, Amarayim, Rishonim, Gaonim, Rishonim, Achronim, exegetes, philosophers, and even modern-day professors to comment and analyze and dissect the event from every possible angle, and therefore the chances of my offering something truly uh, novel to the discussion are unfortunately rather slim. Uh, however, I do hope that by the conclusion of this talk uh, you will be uh, first still awake, and second, uh, emerging with the feeling that you heard something, if not novel, then at least something good. Matan Torah, the revelation and communication of the Torah at Sinai. The only moment in recorded history in which an entire people participated in a prophetic experience of divine communication. The only mo moment, the unique moment, in which an entire people, all Am Yisrael, heard, distinctly heard, the Aseret HaDibra. Or did they? No medieval Jewish thinker disputes the fact that God communicated the Yasserit HaDibrot, the ten statements or utterances that include, according to the Sefer Achinach, 14 specific commandments. But not all Rishonim agree as to what all Am Yisrael actually heard. Thus, on the one hand, the 12th century Yehuda Levi, Rihal, states unequivocally that the entire people distinctly heard every word of the Aserot HaDibrod. To quote from part 1, paragraph 87 of Halevi's Kuzari, God commanded the people to prepare themselves morally as well as physically, enjoining them to keep aloof from their wives and to be ready to hear the words of God. Turn this off. Better off. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the people prepared and fitted themselves to receive prophetic inspiration and even actually to hear in person the words of God. This came to pass three days later and was preceded by overwhelming phenomena, lightning, thunder, earthquake and fire which surrounded Mount Sinai. The fire remained visible to the people 40 days. They also saw Moses enter it and emerge from it. They distinctly heard the ten debrot, the source and foundation of the law. Continues Halevi, and these ten debrot were not received by the people through the intermediary of single individuals or a prophet, but directly from God. So according to Yehuda Halevi, the scenario at Sinai directly involved the entire people in the experience of distinctly hearing Devar Hashem, the word of God. Maimonides, however, writing later in the 12th century, insists upon a different scenario at Sinai. Writes the Rambam in the Guide of the Perplexed, Part 2, Chapter 33, It is clear to me that at Matan Torah, not everything that reached Moshe also reached all Israel. Speech, Dibur, was addressed to Moshe alone. In other words, only Moshe heard distinct words, Hashem's words. The Rambam goes on to explain that the people of Israel for most of the Aseret HaDibrot were merely eyewitnesses of a prophetic communication that directly affected only Moshe. Indeed, this is why, suggests the Rambam, the second person singular is employed throughout the Dibrot. For example, the Lo Yelecha, Elohim Achirim, for only Moshe, only Moshe Rabbeinu, was equipped to distinctly hear and understand that Dibur. As to the rest of the people, they heard a sound, as the Pasuk in Vethanan precisely formulates it, Kol Devarim Atem Shome'im. They heard Kol, not Dibur, sound, not distinct words, 
each according to his or her capacity to hear. And that special sound had to be fully explained to them by Moshe. In fact, the Rambam suggests that even that sound was heard by the people only in the first two Dibrod, which are singled out by Chazal as being more directly communicated to the people, Mipi Hagvura. The other eight were communicated to the people via Moshe. The people realized, of course, that they were witnessing a divine revelation. They were convinced beyond doubt of the veracity and the authenticity of Moshe's prophecy. But the prophetic communication of God's will, the distinct Dibur, was insist the Rambam to Moshe alone. A compromise position was suggested in the early 15th century by Rav Yosef Albo in his Sefer HaIkarim. He claims that since Moshe was so eminently qualified to receive the prophetic revelation at Sinai, there was a form of prophetic fallout, you might call it, for the others who were gathered with him, but were not as qualified. In other words, the impact of the event was uniform due to the one unique individual, Moshe. Albo compares this phenomenon of prophetic fallout to bright sunshine striking a polished mirror. The light bounces off the mirror and illuminates dark areas across from it with a strong level of light. So too Moshe served as the reflecting mirror, elevating all of Israel to a level of prophetic illumination so that all could equally hear and experience the revelatory moment of Matan Torah. So, a question. What underlies this disagreement concerning the scenario at Sinai? What are these medieval Jewish thinkers arguing about? Answer, what they are arguing about concerns a centuries-old controversy over the role of intellectual inquiry in Judaism. Philosophically inclined rabbis over the centuries insisted upon the primacy of, inter- of rational investigation and demonstration of the principles of faith of the Yisodei Hadat. Philosophic inquiry and knowledge maintains this camp are essential to a spiritually vibrant, truly religious life and indispensable to the attainment of shleimut, of religious perfection. Yes, one accepts the truths and commandments of revelation as authoritative because of their divine source. But the person who utilizes rational inquiry in the service of religious truth, the person who demonstrates the contents of tradition, for example, using principles of physics to demonstrate the existence of God and His attributes, or using principles of moral philosophy to understand the reasons for the commandments, that person has reached a higher level of religious attainment. This attitude is spelled out in unequivocal terms by Maimonides in both his legal, <coughs> his legal and philosophic uh, Works, but let's focus for a moment upon the guide of the perplexed, Moren uh, Part Three, Chapter Fifty One, in the section famously known as the palace metaphor, Mashal Haramon. There, Maimonides sets up the image of a king in his palace. The king is God, with various groups of subjects trying to enter the king's chamber, but only able to advance up to a certain point. The metaphor represents a hierarchy of religious attainment as Maimonides goes on to explain, with those, quote, Ame Ha'aretz who observe the commandments, that is, people who have little or no understanding of what they're doing and why, they are seeking to reach the ruler's palace, but they have trouble even seeing it. Then ahead of them are good Talmudists. They study, they observe and they study. But they do not philosophically inquire into the demonstration of the Yisodei Hadat, of the fundamentals of their religion. They come up to the palace and they walk around it. 
seeking to enter. Only, insists the Rambam, only the person who has progressed beyond the mastery of the law. Mastery of the law is prior mastery of the law is indispensable. Mastery of the law is the means provided to us for moral perfection, but only that person who has progressed beyond mastery of the law to become a religious philosopher, only the person who is engaged in metaphysical speculation and rational demonstration of religious principles, only that person can enter the palace and be with the king in the innermost uh, uh, chamber of the palace. Now, not everyone would agree with this position, with this hierarchy, with this implication that Talmud study and observance of mitzvot alone, though vital, are not enough. Not enough to achieve the very highest level of religious perfection. The reaction can be seen, for example, in the late 15th century commentary on the Moreh Nebuchim of Rav Shem Tov ben Yosef Ibn Shem Tov, not to be confused, of course, with his grandfather Shem Tov Ibn Shem Tov, who was the arch anti-Maimonidean at the turn in his Sefer Amunot. This is the grandson who actually was a Maimonidean. Uh, but he says in his commentary on the guide that many contemporary rabbis that he knows goes so far as to question whether the Rambam really wrote chapter 51. And, okay, if he did write it, it should be hidden away, or better yet, should be burned. Uh, if you look analogously at the Rambam's halachic work, we're not going to uh, <clears throat> have time for that right now, but if you look, for example, at the Mishneh Torah, his monumental code of law, Hachot Yisodeh Torah, Perak Dal Halachiyot Gimel, in chapter 4 of the Laws of Fundamentals of the Torah, you'll find, uh, stated in a different way, the same religious hierarchy founded upon a uh, Talmudic passage in, in Tractate Sukkah. But it's the same hierarchy. And, and, and he gets the same strong criticism. If you look there at the commentary of the Kesef Mishnah, right al-Atar, right on the spot, uh, Kesef Mishnah is of uh, Yosef, the 16th century of Yosef Cairo, author of the Shulchan Aruch, and in his commentary he uh, notes the Rambam's opinion on this religious, on this uh, hierarchy in which the religious philosopher is on top. And he says, The Rambam wrote what he wanted to write, but better that it would not have been written. And then he cites the 14th century Ritva, who says simply, And God will atone for the Rambam on this point. Now those are very strong words, but the Rambam took a very strong position on this uh, uh, issue. The other extreme would be represented by Rav Yehuda Halevi. Halevi, who is chronologically prior to the Rambam, we know from, uh, again from Geniza fragments, that uh, he died in 1141 when the Rambam was just a few years old. He represents the other extreme. Those people who argue that an undemonstrated, an unphilosophically examined faith is religiously superior to a philosophically examined faith unquestioning acceptance of religious tradition of the Masorah on the strength of its divine authority is an indication of a healthy religious soul. Halevi expresses this viewpoint at the close of a discourse concerning possible reasons for the commandment of korbanot, of sacrifices. This is in the Kuzari, part 1, paragraph 26, which is a very long paragraph. He offers a symbolic interpretation of korbanot, and at the very end, he notes the following. He says, I do not, God forbid, assert that the intention of the sacrificial service was exactly as here expounded. Indeed, it is more obscure and loftier. It is commanded by God. And he who accepts it with all his heart, without scrutiny or scruple, is superior to the man who scrutinizes and investigates. 
He, however, who descends from the highest grade to scrutinizing, does well to seek a wise reason <coughs> for these commandments. Now note that both the Rambam and Halevi are working with hierarchies. They both have ladders with rungs on them. Uh, except that for Halevi, use of and reliance upon philosophy places you on a lower rung of the hierarchy. That's just a concession to a perturbed soul. Or maybe better put, to a perplexed soul. Because that's, it's instructive to contrast the Rambam and Halevi on the use of the term perplexed. The Rambam, when he writes the Guide of the Perplexed in the introduction to the work, says that he's writing it for a person who is proficient in the in the truths of the religious tradition. He knows the books of, uh, of Bible and Talmud. And he's also proficient in the arts and sciences and how to apply them to demonstration of religious principles. So, uh, as a result, this person has certain questions, certain perplexities, and the Rambam is trying to address those perplexities. So, the perplexed person is really... Um, is really at a very high level. It's not easy to be perplexed, according to the Rampa. It's a noble state. But according to Alevi, the perplexed person has sunk to a lower level. If he has his problem, he can use philosophic inquiry to help him out. But the highest goal is to affirm tradition with pure faith and without any recourse to philosophy. This is piety of the highest level. And similarly, in Book 5 of the Kuzari, Halevi compares the religious philosopher to somebody who analytically studies the laws and the technicalities of art or music or poetry. The highest level, says Halevi, to which this student may attain after years in a conservatory, is to be like the person who's naturally gifted in art or, or music. So too, he says, the highest goal of the religious philosopher with all his investigation and dialectics is that his mind and soul should achieve the certainty of religious fundamentals. But that's a certainty that's already to be found in the naturally pious person. He's just trying to be like the naturally pious individual. Indeed, when you read Halevi on this subject, uh, one is reminded of a story which I've told in the past here. Uh, Mark will remember, I'm sure. Uh, A story related of the 19th century uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard and the 11th century church theologian Anselm. Anselm was the author of a short but compelling and still much debated uh, logical proof of the existence of God known as the ontological argument. That's an argument that moves from a dictionary definition of God to the logical conclusion that God must necessarily exist. Uh, It was reported that when Anselm was about to formally compose his proof, he first entered church, knelt in prayer, petitioning for divine assistance, for siyata dishmaya in this enterprise. He then left the church and composed his proof. Now the 19th century Kierkegaard, we are told, when he heard this story, remarked, what a fool Anselm was. There he was, in church, in the very embrace of God, in prayer, in dialogue with God. And then he leaves that embrace. He leaves that certainty of faith in order to go out and try to rationally prove that God exists. In in Kierkegaard's view, Anselm had simply descended to a lower level. And one senses the affinity here to the Halevian view that to engage in rational demonstration of the fundamentals of faith would be a descent from the higher level to the lower level of religious attainment. So we have two opposing positions here on the issue of the role of philosophic inquiry in Judaism. Or to put it another way, we have two views here on who is the religiously superior Jew. The Rambam holds that the person who accepts and studies the Torah and then uses the arts and sciences uh, to intellectually understand the fundamental principles of the Torah, that person is on the highest madrega, the highest level. Whereas Halevi believes 
that the unquestioning pious individual who has no desire or need for philosophic inquiry, that person is on the highest religious level. And with this background, I invite you to join me as we return together to the moment of Matan Torah at Har Sinai. I believe that recognizing the existence of these differing positions on the issue of intellectual inquiry in Judaism permits us to better understand our original controversy concerning the scenario at Sinai. Matan Torah was the scene of the prophetic communication of God's will. Now the level of prophecy is the highest spiritual stage to which an individual can aspire. If so, it is clear that Maimonides would require such an individual to have successfully utilized rational inquiry in the service of faith to the point that he or she is with the king in his palace prior to possibly reaching the level of prophecy. In other words, you would need to be at the highest rung of the Rambam's ladder in order to be a viable candidate for prophecy. According to the Rambam, therefore, it would be impossible to imagine that all of Israel, so recently slaves in Egypt, had each perfected himself or herself intellectually as well as morally to the point that prophecy was uniformly possible. They simply cannot all have suddenly become religious philosophers overnight. Moshe Rabbeinu, however, had years of preparation for Nevoah prior to his arrival in Egypt, hence the Rambam's reading of events at Sinai, at which only Moshe heard the distinct dibur. Halevi, on the other hand, sees prophecy as a gift from God, bestowed upon any genuinely pious person, any Lamed Vavnik somewhere, who may be totally ignorant of the arts and sciences and how to apply them to the demonstration of religious principles, but whose faith is unblemished and certain, and whose attention is devoted totally to the study and application of God's will. Halevi can point, therefore he does point, to the three-day period of Shaloshet Yemei HaGbalah, uh, prior to Matan Torah Sinai, and he says that's the means through which each person dedicated himself or herself to absolute obedience to the divine will, thereby enabling each to reach the highest rung of Halevi's ladder of spiritual perfection, and therefore each person could participate equally in the prophetic experience of hearing distinct words at Sinai. As to Rav Yosef Alba, it would appear that he was forced into his compromised uh, prophetic fallout position because on the one hand he agrees with Maimonides that you need intellectual perfection for prophecy. That's one of the prerequisites for prophecy. Thus, uh, theoretically, limiting Dibur to Moshe alone. But on the other hand, he opts for a Halevian depiction of the events at Sinai. So, for Albo then, what enabled him to put the two together was the immediate presence of all Am Yisrael at the moment of God's prophetic communication to Moshe. That provided the opportunity for prophetic fallout affecting the entire people equally at this one unique moment. Now, I would suggest to you that the issue underlying the controversy over the scenario at Sinai, namely the role of intellectual inquiry in Judaism, this is a fundamental issue whose uh, repercussions are evident throughout Jewish history. I'll just mention one or two examples. Uh, One example. One cannot fully and accurately comprehend the controversy over the study 
of uh, the philosophic and scientific tradition that raged within the Jewish community, especially in the 12th to 14th centuries, without reference to this underlying fundamental issue of the role of intellectual inquiry in Judaism. This controversy which erupted, which engulfed the Jewish communities of Spain, northern France, southern France, uh, and involved notable figures such as the pro-philosophic Radak and the anti-philosophic Rabbeinu Yonah, it was a controversy that reached one peak in approximately the year 1232 when some of the Rambam's philosophic works were burned by the church in France, possibly at the instigation of anti-philosophic Jews. And it reached another peak in 1305 when a cherem, a ban, a rather watered down and ineffectual ban, but a ban nevertheless, was issued uh, in Barcelona in thir- and signed by the Rashba, among others. Uh, and if you read through the literature of the controversy, you find an array of very specific issues and themes that are being debated. Uh, just a, f- a few quick examples. Uh, the, ph- the philosophic camp is accused, usually unjustly, of denying the belief in physical tchiatamitim, resurrection of the dead. The Rambam himself found it necessary to pen a treatise, defending himself from such charges. Or another example, the philosophers were often accused of, uh, also again usually unfairly, of interpreting biblical passages figuratively, metaphorically, and allegorically in an indiscriminate fashion that destroys the integrity of the text and discards the plain meaning, the shot of the text. Uh, then there were some anti, uh, in, the, in the anti-philosophic camp who uh, simply felt that at best, philosophic inquiry is a waste of time that could be better spent on studying Talmud and Halakha. Uh, when, when you see that, you, you, uh, the rush comes to mind. Rav Asher ben Yechiel, in the early 14th century, who in one of his responses, when a philosophic matter comes up, he says, Birch Rachman, blessed be God, uh, who spared me any knowledge of philosophy. Uh, the, uh, and uh, these are some of the specific themes throughout that controversy. But I would suggest that the there is always one most fundamental issue that underlies the whole controversy, never goes away. It's always there, and that is the one we just discussed, the role of intellectual inquiry in Judaism. And so when Yudaya Panini writes his rebuttal to the bin, uh, it's a lengthy and flowery rebuttal that's printed in standard editions of uh, the Chuvat of the Rashba right after the bin. If you look at the very end of that rebuttal, uh, he, he says that even if Yoshua bin Nun what to get up and proclaim <clears throat> that we are prohibited from studying this philosophic and scientific tradition. He says, we couldn't listen, we, we have to. Uh, what does he mean? Because he feels it's a religious imperative to do so in order to reach the highest level of shleimut. How could he not do so? That's what's really underlying the controversy. Or just to give you a second example of the repercussions of this debate, uh, very briefly this time, um, the contemporary curricular debate over uh, concerning Jewish day schools, high schools, yeshivot, and uh, colleges. What curriculum should a Jewish school teach? Well, that's dependent in many ways on the question we've been considering because after all, how you structure a yeshiva or a Jewish college has much to do with who you think is the ideal educated Jew to be produced by that college and to be produced by that curriculum. That goes back to the very same question we've been discussing. Now, if you ask me, which position, which position, that of the Rambam or Halevi, is more authentic, more firmly rooted in Jewish tradition, more correct? Uh, My answer would be that I honestly don't know. I think that both positions are tenable. 
They're both tenable. And one cannot conclusively demonstrate that either is more authentic or more correct or more firmly rooted. And I'll offer you a ra'aya, a proof text for that. Uh, the proof text is from Divrei Yamim in uh, part one, uh, book uh, one, chapter 28, Aleph Kavched, uh, where David HaMelech says to his son Shlomo, David says to Solomon, Vata Shlomo b'ni, you Solomon, my son, da et ve'avdehu. Know the Lord of your fathers and serve him. Okay, now that Pasuk has a history of interpretation. And for the relevant history, I'd like to introduce for a moment, uh, just quickly, I might truncate this a bit, but I'd like to introduce for a moment another prominent medieval writer, Rav Bachia ibn Pakuda, who lived in the second half of the 11th century in Spain, prior to both Halevi and, and the Rambam, and who wrote uh, the Chovot uh, Vavot, Duties of the Heart, uh, which is a... Uh, of course, a very well-known work. It often serves as a primary text for Musar and Hashkafa in major yeshivot. Of course, the irony is that many of these same yeshivot would staunchly oppose the Maimonidean approach to philosophic inquiry that I just uh, outlined. Uh, yet Rav Bachia, in the introduction and first gate, the first shower, there are ten sha'arim in the book, in the first shower of the work, uh, he comes out strikingly Maimonidean and anti-Halevian in his uh, view on this uh, issue. So it's uh, no surprise, therefore, that the tradition in most Shivot is to skip the introduction and the first gate. And they usually start with the second gate of the Chovot Tavavot. And for good reason. If we take a look at the first gate just for a moment, we find, for example, and this will get us into the history of interpretation of this passage from Divrei Yamim, um, we find in chapter 2 of gate 1, the following uh, statement. <coughs> uh, the the Bachia is here describing an individual who professes acceptance of the theological principle of Yichud Hashem, the unity of God. But his knowledge of the principle, says Rav Bachia, quote, is attained through tradition only. It's just received, he never inquired into the understanding of it. Um, such a person, he says, is like a blind man led by one that can see. It is also possible that he's receiving the tradition from one who himself only learned it traditionally and never inquired into it. So, continues Arbachia, this suggests comparison with a company of blind men, each of whom has his hand on the shoulder of the one in front of him, and so on until the file reaches a person endowed with sight who is at their head and acts as their guide. Should this seeing person fail in his duty and neglect to watch over his company, or should any of them stumble or meet with any other mishap, the misfortune would affect them all. They would all miss their way, fall into a pit or a ditch, or encounter an obstacle that would prevent their further progress. So according to Rav Bachir, the danger of not engaging in philosophic inquiry and just accepting only on the basis of uh, tradition, received tradition, is that you may more easily uh, go astray or be persuaded to a corrupt form of that doctrine because you really don't understand it. He continues in chapter 3, where he comes to this passage uh, under discussion, in chapter 3 of the Gate 1, where he says, uh, I assert that anyone capable of investigating the principle of God's unity or similar philosophical themes by rational methods is bound to do so, according to his powers and capacities. Anyone who neglects to institute such an inquiry is blameworthy and is accounted as belonging to the class of those who fall short in wisdom and conduct. So this is a Maimonidean position. It's a hierarchy. It's a Maimonidean position pre-Maimonides. And was Maimonides influenced uh, by him? I won't get into that now uh, because of time constraints. But yes, I could give you examples. Uh, where he is 
the terminology and the and the themes are so uh, the affinities are so close. Uh, the Rambam never cites Bach, but then he never, hardly ever cites any. Uh, 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 of his uh, Spanish-Jewish uh, philosophic predecessors. He refers to them usually as a group, as the Andalusians. Uh, so he probably did read them. He was influenced. In fact, there's a book by Diana Lobel on mysticism and philosophy in uh, Bach ibn Pakuda's Choval Talvavon. Uh, and the very last sentence of her book, the last sentence, is uh, Maimonides is indeed a disciple of Rabbeinu Bachian. That's what uh, she shows... Uh, quite conclusively. Uh, in any case, if you go a few lines later in this chapter 3 of Gate uh, 1, he now tries to prove his assertion that you have to engage, you are mandated to engage in philosophic inquiry by quoting some scriptural proof text. And he lists five proof texts, um, one of which is the one uh, I, I brought into the discussion, the one in which David says to Solomon, and then the others all have the same common denominator, you'll notice it. For example, in Devarim uh, ch- uh, uh, chapter 4, or in uh, Psalms and Tehillim 100, uh, verse 3, um, uh, is it? Know, know, uh, that, uh, know that the Lord is God. Or in Tehillim 91, I will set him on high because he knows my name. Or finally from Yermiyahu Parakhtet, For he that wants to glory should glory in this, knowing, uh, knowing uh, and understanding me. So all of these psukim have in common the context of knowing God or knowing something about God, and all feature prominently the word da, or some uh, permutation of that word. The haskel And what happens is, uh, uh, as far as Bachi is concerned, these psukim, in these contexts, with the word da, are an affirmation of the... Um, Mandate and the obligation to philosophically inquire into the principles of faith. And from then on, you see this word da as a catchword for philosophic inquiry among medieval philosophers. So it's no uh, surprise, I think, when you see the Rambam in The Guide of the Perplexed, Part 3, Chapter 51, citing the same Pasuk from Divri Hayamim uh, that Bachya cited and using it the same way. He's following Be'ikvot in the wake of Bachya. And he says, when David says to his son Solomon, the Rambam interprets it, Da, philosophically inquire into your religion, my son Shlomo. And then Vavdehu. And then ultimately you may serve Hashem on the highest Madrega. So it's this Pasuk, Da, Telokeh, Vichu, Vavdehu, that becomes a key proof text in the debate over intellectual inquiry in Judaism. What's interesting, however, to prove my previous point, uh, when I said I didn't know which is more correct or firmly rooted, if you look at Halevi, in the Kuzari, part 5, Okay? He's looking for a proof text for his view. So what does he choose? The very same Pasuk. From Divrei Yamim. Only he has a different emphasis. He, he interprets it as follows. Uh, Solomon, my son, says David, uh, the king, what is it that you need to know? Know the God of your father. Know the Messorah that's handed down to you. If you accept the religious faith of Avicha, if you accept Elokei Avicha without further inquiry, then, then you will serve 
Hashem on the highest level. And so I submit to you, if the very same proof text can be employed for two diametrically opposed positions that are different, from one extreme to the other extreme, then that should tell us something about how difficult and perhaps impossible it is to conclusively demonstrate the truth or authority of either one. I'd like to close uh, uh, very quickly, more quickly than I thought, with um, uh, just, uh, if you were to ask me, are these the only... Uh, positions on the issue of those of the Raman Halevi. Very quickly, I'd like to cite a line or two from the 10th century Rav Sajid Gaon, who I feel stakes out an intermediate position on who is the religiously superior Jew. In the end of his introduction to Sefer Amunov the Book of Beliefs and Opinions, he says the following, and you can think to yourself, does it sound like Maimonides, like Halevi, like neither, like both? He starts saying, God commanded us to inquire patiently until the truth of tradition was brought out by philosophic speculation. Maimonides, right? But then a couple lines later, he says, in the case of some of us, it may, be, it may take a very long time until our philosophic speculation is completed. But we shall be none the worse for that because we have it by, by Masorah, by received tradition. Well, that doesn't sound like the Rambam because the Rambam has a hierarchy. And if you don't inquire, then you are the worse for it. Uh, and finally, he says, even people incapable of speculation will possess a complete religion. Uh, uh, why? Because they have it uh, by received tradition. That sounds like Halevi. So where does he stand? So Sajid clarifies it with a characteristically arithmetic example. He says, let's say a person has 1,000 dinar and he wants to distribute this money to different people. So he, he does the following. He gives five people each 20 and 250 dinar. He gives six people each 16 and two-third dinar. He gives seven people each 14 and two-seventh dinar. And he gives eight people each 12 and three-eighth dinar. And then he gives nine people each 11 dinar. And now he wants to uh, demonstrate how many dinarim are left. Okay? Anybody following closely? <laughs> okay. If, if you use an iPhone, it's d- disqualified. Okay. okay. Uh, the, uh, so he wants to show his friends in a way that they can uh, believe it with absolute certainty how much is left. Now, if you figure it out, there are 500 dinarim exactly left. So he has two options, says Rav Sajid. He can either weigh the remaining gold, put it on the scale, the digital readout will say 500, they're obliged to believe with absolute certainty that this is correct, or they can, they can figure it out. They can do the math. And the bottom line will also prove with absolute certainty. So, it's, so just to conclude, as far as Rav Sajid is concerned, you can reach the same level of certainty of understanding, the same level of certainty of faith, either by rational demonstration of the fundamental principles of faith, doing the math, or by simply accepting these fundamental principles as transmitted by tradition and stated in the Torah, that's the digital readout. Both avenues lead to the same level of, of shleimut, of perfection, and so what we have are different strokes for different folks, but the different methods are qualitatively equal. So if then the Rambam and Halevi are at opposite ends of the spectrum, I would suggest that you could place Rosaja right in the middle. And here, if I'll switch for just one second, I'm finishing, I think, right on time, one minute late. Not bad. Uh, the... Uh, I'll switch uh, a quick wardrobe change. I'll just switch uh, to, uh, since it's Tinek, to my rabbinic hat. I do have a history here uh, in the Orthodox Rabbinate. And I'm here at Rina. Uh, so I would just conclude with the following uh, a brief Musa Haskell. Uh, a, a message, a lesson that emerges from our discussion thus far, or maybe it's not a message, maybe it's a tefillah, uh, just a prayer. If only the Orthodox Jewish community modern, centrist, yeshivish, Haredi, Hasidish, uh, would accept and acknowledge in accordance with Rav Sajid, that there are different but equally valid avenues towards Shleimut, then perhaps we would see more mutual respect among all these groups and perhaps, just perhaps, we might all even pause to listen to each other, to study and learn from each other's many strengths 
as we all continue in our mutual quest to enter the king's palace and be with the king in his innermost habitation. Thank you all for coming, and please stay for the rest of the program. Okay, so we're off to a great start. Um, in here, in the main shul, we will have now at 11.15, after you refresh yourself, uh, Dr. Maya Katz, followed by at 12.15, Dr. C. Kaplan. In the main garage, you will have Dr.